the North Pole, you start actually in the coldest temperatures of your life. It's about 75 below zero. Because of all the white, you're overwhelmed by the starkness of both the environment and your fragility in that environment. It's all before you and it's pretty daunting. But then you see all sorts of colors in the ice, the turquoises and the greens, uh, the striations of the different um, ages of the ice that's been heaved up. And, and then, of course, that sunlight, that low-lying sun at the top of the world going through it. You might have all these ice crystals just sort of dancing on the horizon. It's, it's so extraordinarily beautiful. You just want to cry. Welcome to the open air. This is Jesse Raisler, and you're listening to Open Air Humans, stories of how people have found a happier, healthier, more human life outdoors. Today, an understanding of what it feels like to stand on the very top of the world from the first woman to ever do it. Polar explorer Anne Bancroft has forged a path that's taken her to both poles, 1,700 miles across Antarctica on skis and into the classroom of millions of elementary school children. She made history and lit the world on fire in 1986 when she became the first woman to reach the North Pole and give young women a new kind of role model. This episode is brought to you by The Open Air Outpost, a new nature escape with luxury tiny cabin and glamping options just two hours northeast of the Twin Cities. It's a place where we made it easy to put into practice all the wisdom we've learned from the guests on this very show. You can even book unique experiences with some of them as part of your stay. Learn more at openairoutpost.com. Without further ado, and you start your book, No Horizon Is So Far, with a quote. I learned to wander. I learned what every dreaming child needs to know, that no horizon is so far that you cannot get above it or beyond it. And I'd love it if you could tell me what that quote means to you and how it's tied to the fact that on your expeditions, you were always sure to bring millions of kids yeah. <laughs> along with you um, virtually by you know speaking to the classrooms along the way. Huh. Well, um, it's nice to hear that quote after a long time. Yeah. Um, I... Uh, I always put a quote in the front of my journal. Mm. Um, and of course, you don't know what the journey is going to bring you. But what I've found over the years <clears throat> is that usually the quote fits perfectly mm. with what unfolds um, in terms of how it affects me and what I learn about myself more than anything. And mm. um, that trip, the reason we put it in the front of the book is because the crossing of Antarctica was a childhood dream of mine. Mm. I've been wanting to do that since I was a 10-year-old girl. Wow. And I encountered people like my parents, for instance, and a teacher or two, um, a coach, that instilled in me that the, you know, that the horizon was out there for me 
and you just you've got to find your way to it. Mm. Um, and so it's really about dreams. That's great. And I mean, a lot of people are probably you know content with the expedition is the thing. Like we're going to go, and it's an achievement, a, a lifelong dream. But you wanted to to share it, and specifically with kids. Tell me more about like why you thought it'd be great for these kids to be able to follow along. Well, I'm an elementary school teacher by trade, yeah. so it comes a little bit honestly. But when when I went off to the North Pole in 1986 with Will Steger and Paul Shirky and the guys, that was just a dream of mine. It was, you know, we didn't have any sort of extending uh, missions to that trip. We weren't raising money for anything. We weren't trying to do anything but just live out something that we you know, very much wanted to do. When I got to the top of the world as the first woman and came home, um, you know, the, the, the world was sort of on fire about this first woman thing, and mm. it really threw me. I mean, mm. quite frankly, I, you know, we went, when we left Minnesota, <laughs> there was just like about two dozen people that said goodbye <laughs> to us. It was mostly our families. When we came back, there were just throngs of thousands of people in wow. front and politicians, and we were thrust up on the stage, and and you know, so my world was upside down. You know, you're just launched into a whole another realm that you didn't really plan on. Yeah, um, that you're sort of thrown into, and after I settled into it, um, I realized that I had a new platform. Mm. that I was standing upon, and I wanted to do something with that. So I sort of made a promise to myself. I said, if you ever do another big public expedition, um, you need to do something that's bigger than your own personal ambition. You can't. Mm-hmm. You need your personal ambition. That's, that's a driver. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to do things that you love to do. But I wanted to do something sort of broader than that. Mm-hmm. And the only way I knew how to demonstrate it was with kids and with curriculum. In 1992, when I led a women's group across Greenland and then to the South Pole, we had a very grassroots curriculum, and we had 350,000 kids. And to me, that was an astronomical number. And that launched the merger of what I call passion and purpose. passion for doing these things, both outdoors and educational things, and my purpose is really that driver of, of, of bringing kids along with me. And so we've just been doing it ever since. Uh, I've kept to the promise, and it's it's been a fantastic ride. And I, I think the thing that's so powerful about it is they're a part of my team. You know, I got, I got millions of kids all around the world that um, come with us in a way that when you stumble and you don't feel like doing it, maybe you think you can't. I sort of look back on my sled and I go, you know, I see metaphorically millions of kids and I think, I gotta do it. You also talked a lot about in your book that it's like supremely beautiful, but also there's a lot of danger there. And um, I, there was a quote, I think you said, uh, who knew hell would be so beautiful, right? <laughs> um, can you just give me a sense of like, you know, obviously everyone thinks like, okay, it's, you know, negative 70 degrees, your, your skin could freeze instantly. But the other danger, especially in Antarctica, 
are these crevasses, right? Like you said in the book, like it's hard to explain what's going through your head when you fall through your ice up to your knees. At that point, you have no idea how deep the hole is. Your legs might be dangling if you're in it to your elbows and that crack could go down for miles. Like, give me a sense of uh, what that's like and then how do you get your mind in a place where you feel okay like moving through an environment when any step could be potentially disastrous. <laughs> you got to have a good sense of humor <laughs> or maybe a sick sense of humor. I don't know. Maybe both. Uh, yeah, 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 maybe yeah. a little mix. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's these are environments that are certainly dangerous at any given time. I'm, I think the, the greatest danger actually is the remoteness. It's mm. it's not sort of the drama of a mishap like a crevasse. And and mm-hmm. if we went into, you know, a deep crevasse, that would have been the end of the whole scene because we've mm-hmm. got a 260-pound sled behind us. You know, it's an anchor. So, yeah. and we did have things to try and mediate that. But, you know, you just, you work hard not to have those scenarios happen. And mm-hmm. um, we spend an awful lot of time before we leave just visualizing and training and just working out these scenarios, adapting our gear um, because there's only two of us um, Mm -hmm. to try and figure out how to travel as safely as possible so that we don't live in constant fear. Mm -hmm. It's a little dicier on the Arctic Ocean because it's, it's, it's more of a living being in the sense that there's a current underneath and so the ice is constantly shifting and shaking and um Mm. but you but you do learn how to read it and try and set your camp up on older ice for instance um so there's things you can do and then you stay alert i mean i think the the biggest thing is not to be complacent um we sailed on antarctica and i'm kind of going from pole to pole here but we sailed on antarctica periodically and we were coming down the shackleton glacier and you know, climbers know that you know when you go down a glacier, you actually can't see the crevasses because it's sort of like a waterfall. It's spilling before you. If you mm. go up a glacier, you can see the fissures sure. um, or the indentations in the surface of the ice and snow. And and when you're sailing, you're moving pretty quick. And right. one day we were coming down this glacier, and nobody had been down this glacier before, which was thrilling. And leave is up ahead on this afternoon, and I'm following, and we stay pretty t- tight in single file. And I am watching. She's sailing across these crevasses, and then they're opening up. And I'm steering around them. And I just remember my stomach or my heart being in my throat. And, you know, so when you say, how do you keep moving? You sort of just keep moving because if you stop and overthink it, you... I don't know that you'd ever get going again, Uh, you know, when there's so much sort of happening beneath you. You know, it's like the bottom is coming out from under you. Yeah. And... You know, and then it becomes a distant memory and you're on to the next thing that day. So you hmm. you can't get paralyzed by the fear. Right. Well, and there's not only that, I would imagine the challenge obviously is like there's immediate danger. But then after a certain point, you know, you mentioned isolation. I would imagine like the mental game mm-hmm. is a huge part of it, not just the physical. And something I read um, 
especially when you're in an extreme place for a long period of time and sometimes kind of magical things can can happen too and i have to ask you because i'll always wonder about it if i don't um can you describe this phenomenon that you call the third man the third aura yeah (laughs) yeah what is that well it's been written a lot about but it's uh as i understand it it's um it's sort of this aura of a a significant person or a presence um, sort of on your shoulder, Mm. if you will. And when does this appear? Like, what's the situation that this aura comes to? I think they always occur in in isolation. Mm -hmm. And, And I had leave, but we didn't talk much during the day. Hours and hours upon hours can go by with no communication. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just, you're just plotting and doing the work. So I think some of it is isolation. I think some of it is the hard work and repetitive hard work. You know, our trips, it is plotting one foot in front of the other. And I think that repetition uh, can be a, a rhythm. It's almost like a form of meditation at I, a certain point. I think right? so. Yeah. But I think those are some of the conditions that sort of enhance perhaps this other presence that sort of travels with you. For me, the people that my, for instance, my, my mentors, and two of them are, are gone, hmm. I felt like they were with me. So is that the third man phenomenon? I don't know. But that presence of those people pulling for me who made all the difference in what I'm doing that day. I was in Antarctica because of their belief in me when I was young or they supported me in so many different ways that I I felt them sort of sitting on my shoulder. And they motivated me, and I talked to them. It's a powerful, powerful experience. That sense of uh, having others or another with you, like literally with you on your shoulder, helping you, it lightens your load a little bit. The times I really remember, it's like I'm almost on my chin, you know, leaning mm. so forward trying to make this sled go up. And, you know, it's all I can do to just not go backwards. And that's when I sort of enlist this help. Yeah. You know, so it kind of is almost as if somebody was sort of giving me a, a shove from the back. <laughs> it was awesome. Well, I was fascinated by it because, you know, I think some of the most magical and mystical experiences I can remember in my life have happened, like, out in these wild places where there's a natural phenomenon or something and you're just awestruck and then things open up in a kind of crazy, sometimes, you know, like, spiritual feeling way. Um, So I find that that really, really interesting. Um, You know, not everybody is necessarily going to take on a continent like Antarctica um, or the pole, but I feel like there's a way to approach this in a, in a very accessible way. And you actually, starting when you were eight years old, started having much more um, accessible expeditions right in your own backyard, right? Yeah. Um, so I'd love to hear about your very first expedition um, 
and what having those types of experiences at home at a young age did for you and what, what those types of things can do for, for all children. Yeah. I think, you know, I'm a big advocate that adventure really is right out the door. It doesn't matter if we're in an urban setting or in a rural setting or, you know, it's, it's, there's just so much to be had if your eyes are wide open and you have curiosity and, Hmm. That childlike wonderment, I think, is is huge, especially if you're an adult. You know, I I I did live in a rural situation, and um, so for me, I wanted to winter camp. I just wanted to build an igloo and learn how to do all of these things. And so, um, fortunately, my parents let me try. The igloo was a disaster. <laughs> I could never quite get it to you know get the a roof. roof on it. Oh yeah, that's a tough part. That's a tough part. Um, but I would create these snow walls and and a, a, a smoky fire and and I don't know actually why I stuck with it because it was pretty miserable. I mean, hmm. my can of peaches were frozen solid in the morning <laughs> and. Uh, the fire was smoky. I was just learning all this stuff. Yeah. and um, But I just somehow just kept doing it. And I I was a shy kid. I We didn't have a lot of neighbors. And so imagination was huge. Mm. And mm. it played a huge role. And I just was constantly imagining being on expeditions and being heroic. It began to sort of lay the pavers for what was to come. Yeah. And it's been, it's you know, I still have that. I still love to go out and make forts. I mean, you know, there's nothing yeah. greater than winter camping because you're, you can design your whole camp every night. S- snow sculptures, you know, in terms of benches and yep. Yep. fire pits. and I, I totally, I, I just had the first opportunity to make a big snow fort with my five-year-old son. And it's like, it brought me right back yeah. to when I was that age and that childhood wonder, like you're talking about. It never leaves. And it's so great to be able to reconnect with it. Yeah. I um, think more adults should play with kids uh, because they don't care. They don't yeah. even care if they have mittens on, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and I know, you know, turning young people onto wilderness experiences has been a huge part of your life's work through you know, Camp Wijiwagan yeah. in Ely and being an instructor at Clara Barton and leading trips for Wilderness Inquiry. Um, why do you think it's so important for young people and really all people to get out into the wild more often? Well, I think you said it a little bit um, a little bit ago. It's It can be really transformative. Um, we are a part of nature and we live lives that disconnect us very, very quickly. We don't have to look up um, and see what the weather is. We just tune in. Um, And we often don't wear clothing that is suitable because we're jumping from a car to a building or, you know, we have our cars in the garage. And it is a magical, wonderful world. And I think it, it, it transports us very, very quickly to our own humanity. We, we get peace. Um, I think it's better for our health. We move physically. Every day I go out and I, you know, I don't have to go far. Um, I don't have to go to a park and I see something I think is extraordinary. You know, it could be a feather on the ground. It could be moss that is still green in the dead of winter when it's, you know, the Arctic vortex out there. And, uh, you know, 
what are the otters doing? I, you know, my backyard is, I think, is is a magical place every day, and it 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 is so good for my mental health. You know, to pull away from the computer screen, um, from work, and let your mind just wander and watch, and and also be in quiet. I think we're so unaccustomed to that, and. I wasn't really that aware of it until I came back from Antarctica the first time and started sharing my story in some of the videos um, because I do live in a lot of quiet, but people were so intimidated by the idea of being in all of that silence for 100 days. It does change you. I mean, it's it's not in, if you let yourself go. It, it is a little uncomfortable, perhaps at first, but it's and then the, but then you start to hear, and you're hearing things that you never knew existed. You know, the nuances of a wind or a breeze, or a piece of fabric, and or the way your ski hits the ice, and you know, sort of shushes along as yeah. you slog, and yeah. your breath. And on Antarctica, it can be, you know, it can go from being absolutely a gale and all, you can't hear hardly anything because it's so loud. And then it can be deadly still. And all you hear is your heartbeat in your throat. So it's it's nature is a way of giving us that wonderful pause. I think that sort of lets a lot of oxygen in the room in our you know in our brains and in our souls. And I I, I just want to introduce it to everybody because it's I think we we lose touch with it and or it's not sort of in our fabric of the way we grew up, but it's it's all around us. Well, I think all the amazing adventures that you've led and been on have certainly inspired a lot of people to get out there and experience nature. Is there anything in in closing up here for people who wanted to um, support those efforts of getting more people out outside and, and introducing someone who hasn't spent a lot of time in nature to an experience like that? Do you have any advice or recommendation? Like, what can we do to get more people to experience this? Well, I think, you know, the first thing is just to kind of get the explorer's mindset going, and that is just to um, be hungry for what's, what's on the next horizon. Get out of your comfort zone a little bit. Bundle up, because if you don't eat right and you don't dress right, then, for instance, winter is no fun for anybody, even if you're an explorer. Um, so it's, it's sort of just having that that I think that childlike wonderment or that willingness to step out uh, go to the art shanties you know get outside and just breathe some of that cold air and have some fun and be that kid again but there are programs if you want to learn um, some skills you know there's the rovers for adults and you can find people that are sort of curious and interested um, there are Y camps that obviously shaped me and um, many, many others, you know, thousands and thousands of kids. Um, 
that head out into the wilderness year-round. Wilderness Inquiry, they go all over the world all year-round and all different kinds of folks, you know, and most of which have never experienced a wilderness setting. So there's just, there's a plethora of uh, entry points and enthusiasts. I just, you know, you just, it's really, I think the biggest thing is is the mindset. You've just, you've got to be willing to sort of explore a little bit. You don't have to go terribly far, but you just to be curious. Um, and a whole lot of fun can ensue. Be curious, start small, and who knows where you end up. That's right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for being here today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. To learn more about Anne, the work of her foundation, and support their mission of empowering girls to imagine something bigger through grants, mentorship, and ongoing development opportunities, visit annbancroftfoundation.org. Open Air Humans is a production of Credo Nonfiction. See and hear more at credononfiction.com. And we'd love to see and hear from you. As part of Open Air Humans, we're collecting something we call Open Air Diaries. We'd love a simple story from you about a moment you were out in nature and became awestruck. Tell us about a time you experienced something that made you feel a deeper or more profound connection to the world around you. If you'd be so kind to record that story on your phone is great and email that audio file to openairhumans at gmail.com. We'll be collecting these and playing one at the end of each episode moving forward. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending your time with us and sharing your life with us out here in the open air.